This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. It's awesome to be back. Wake has a special place in my heart, not only because I met my wife here and all that, but because maybe like some of you, I started wrestling with like some big questions in life when I was in college. I grew up in the church, got here and, you know, got exposed to all sorts of different ideas. And suddenly it was like, okay, I got to figure out if I actually believe this stuff. Is this stuff true? And so I started digging into all sorts of the big questions, um, studied philosophy. Got any philosophy majors here? One. Okay, good. (laughs) A couple more. All right, good. And uh, history, all that stuff was hugely uh, important to my own journey. Um, And so I I thought I'd talk tonight just about one of the big questions, which is basically like, who is God? And how do we know what he's like? Um, And so we're going to look at the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. So I don't know, is this this up here? Okay, great. So you can see it. I'm going to read it. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit about First John before we read it. Um, it's a letter written by one of the apostles, one of the people that, that lived and walked with Jesus for his whole ministry, saw him crucified, saw him after he was raised from the dead, and then um, spent the rest of his life basically bearing witness to what he had seen. And this letter is one of the few that he wrote to a, a group of churches um, where he essentially is, is talking about what it means to know God um, what is core to Christianity? What is God like? And he gives throughout his letter about three marks of real Christianity. He says, this is what is at the essence of it. This is how you can tell true Christianity. Um, and so he says it's got these doctrinal components, things you need to believe about God and about Jesus. And then he says it's also got this moral component. So you actually have to obey God's commands. And that means you also have to have this life where you acknowledging all the ways you're not obeying God's commands and you repent and you confess that to God. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. And then he says, it's also got this relational component where you, you actually have an affection for God and for other people, in particular, God's people. And so those three things, the doctrinal component, moral and relational, all of those together make up just this basic core Christianity. And that's really helpful for us because if you've been a Christian a long time, it's helpful to be like, what is at the heart of all this? Because there's all sorts of Christians out there with all sorts of beliefs about many different things. And it's helpful for us to know what are the things that hold us, you know, unite us all together. And then if you're exploring Christianity, of course, it's helpful because this is going to show you like the basic beliefs about God and, um, and what it means to follow him and know him and walk with him. So let me read this and then I'll, I'll say some more. So this is First John chapter four. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us 
because he has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, just pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word, and we pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the message is pretty simple uh, tonight. I'm I'm basically going to show us that John is telling us that as the beloved of God, the God who is love, then we need to love one another. That's the message. So uh, we're going to explore this kind of very core of the Christian faith in three points. And the first is just uh, kind of talking about this line, God is love. God is love. Now, John tells us that God is love. Very clearly, very explicitly there in verse 8, he says it straightforwardly. God is love. What does he mean by that? He means that God is generous. He is self-giving for the good of others. Now, love entails actually willing, desiring the good of another person, even at a great cost to ourselves. It is a giving of ourselves for the joy and the good of another person. And this is a totalizing thing. It's, it's not just in one part of their life. It's seeking their whole good, not in selective ways, but holistically. And it's not just a temporary thing. It's not something we will in a moment, but it is an enduring and steadfast willing of that person's good throughout time. Love must endure. It has uh, limits that it places on us. We, we're bound to seek the good of other people in an ongoing way and in ways that bring life. Love always brings life to other people. It protects life. It bears fruit. That's what love is. And John says that is who God is. Now, notice the way I'm talking about love, the way that John intends us to hear this, love is not just some feeling. Love is, uh, is not just a sentiment. It's not just a, a, an affection that's temporary. It is an enduring desiring for the good of another, which requires that there is some sort of notion of what's actually good for that person apart from what I think or they think. There's an objective good to this person's life. And that means that John is kind of guarding against two different ideas of love that I think are very common today. One is just this kind of shallow sentimental love where we just, um, we sort of have an affection for someone, a, a niceness, or maybe even like a romantic idea of love. You know, that feeling that I had back there when the butterflies were going, when I met my wife and hung out with her and was getting to know her. It's just that, you know, just kind of infatuated with her for, for a time. That's not what John is talking about. He's talking about the sort of love that actually plays out in a marriage, where over time, as you get into the nitty-gritty of life and you face hardship and people change and they betray you at times and they hurt you in certain ways, that you continue to be committed to their good despite how they treat you. It's not sentimental, it's costly, and it requires a a connection to a person that that brings pain and even loss into our life at times. That's one error, but John also guards against another common idea of love today, which I think is rampant, and that's this sort of unconditional affirmation of other people. When you talk to people about what love means today, generally that's what they mean, is that you just unconditionally affirm my sense of identity and, and the sense of meaning I've decided for my life and how I want to live, and you just, you give me unconditional affirmation. That is, un, you know, that's overwhelmingly common today, but I think we all know intuitively that's not really loving people, especially when we see 
uh, when people are being self-destructive, for instance, right? That there's an inherent way that we're made to live. And when people, when we make decisions that just continually degrade us and hurt other people, love actually means confronting that, right? And calling people out of those things. Like if we have an addict, someone who's addicted to drugs, we know that love means actually intervening and calling them out of what they might feel is really good for them, but we know is destructive. And so John's not talking about unconditional affirmation. He's not talking about sentimentalism. He's talking about um, a giving of ourselves and a giving of God's self that actually is for our good. But John doesn't just say God is love. He, he's saying something a little bit more profound than we might realize at first. He's saying God is love. It's his very nature. He's making a comment about the essence of who God is. And this is why I think it's such an important question, because uh, at least I was asking when I was where you are, you know, who is God exactly? And how does this understanding of God compare to what other people say about who God is? John is saying that God is more than just a power or an energy that flows through everything. God is love at his very core. And he said a number of other things about God in his letter. He said God is life, that all life flows out of this fountain of God's overflowing life. And it says God is light. He is this um, indivisible, pure, and true God. But here he says God is love. And um, throughout the letter uh, and throughout scriptures, we get all these different descriptions of God. We see that God is not um, different from his attributes. What do I mean by that? And some of you, maybe some of you philosopher guys might follow me here. But, um, you know, each of us can be described by a lot of the, what we might call accidents, things that aren't really at the core of who we are. Like, for instance, many of you have hair. I don't. I used to. <laughs> hair is not at the essence of who I am. It's an accidental feature of who I am. It, it came and it went, right? And many of us, we might be kind for a season, but as our character develops, we might become bitter and unkind people. Or, or maybe the opposite is true. We might be, you know, be foolish at one point in our life, but as we grow and mature, we become wise. So wisdom and kindness and hair, these are accidental to who we are. But with God, it, love is not an accidental feature of who he is. It is at the essence of who he is. His attributes are his essence. God is unchanging and inseparable from his attributes And John tells us this incredible attribute that God is love. He is totally love. All that he is and everything that he does is love. And that's why earlier in the letter in chapter one, verse five, John says, in him is no darkness, no evil, no hatred at all. God is pure love in all that he is and all that he does is love. Now you might be asking, how is that possible? If you think about Um, about what we claim about God, that he's this independent being that doesn't need creation, that all that has been made is distinct from God. He's not dependent on it in any way. How can God be a God of love? And the answer is, is, is maybe surprising. It's that God is triune. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who have always existed in a loving community, a community where each person gives themselves to glorify, to show the beauty of the other persons. And God has always existed that way. And that's vital to our belief as Christians that God is love. Because think about this. There are other religions that say God is maybe love, but they say they insist that God is one. He is not a trinity. And if you think about that, that means that those gods have to have a creation in order to be love. They're dependent on there being a creation because love requires a giving of self to another. 
The only way that God can be love, independent of creation, is if God exists as a trinity, as a community. So that's at the heart of what John is telling us. God is like an ever-flowing fountain of love. God's love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is never-ending, and it overflows generously into creation and then into what we call redemption. Creation is an act of love. Redemption, the sending of his Son, is an act of love. Now, again, you might be saying, well, this is all, of course God is love. What else would God be? Uh, you know, lots of people believe this, but this is not at all obvious. It is not at all obvious. In fact, the fact that you might think it is obvious only shows how radically transformative Christianity has been in the world. There's a great book. I'm sure you don't have anything to read these days, but if you ever get around to a book uh, by Tom Holland um, called Dominion, he does a wonderful job of showing how Christianity radically changed the Western world. The influence of Christianity totally changed the Roman world and the other pagan um, cultures that, that encountered Christianity. I was listening to a podcast talking about the Vikings and their invasion of uh, what is now Ukraine and Kiev and all this. And this guy was describing the funeral rituals of some of these chieftains. And it was just absolutely horrific. If you heard the things that they did to women and to uh, each other, the bloodshed, the, the abuse, the violence, it's, it's horrifying. And this was so normal to these people. And we think, how could anyone live like that? And it's because we see that uh, we should love one another. And that is because of how Christianity, this God of love, has changed cultures all over the world to see the value of that. Not every religion has always thought that God should be love. So the point that I'm getting at here is John says God is love. He's an overflowing fountain of love. But how do we know that? How do we know that God is love? We look around us, we see um, pain and suffering. We experience pain and suffering. We see um, God's story and scripture. And you look at things and you go, oh, that kind of seems a little unjust. I don't know why that was happening. How did God let that happen? Uh, maybe sometimes the way God speaks seems unloving. And so, you know, we, we might question that. So how do we know? Well, that's the second thing I want us to see. And that is that God's love is revealed in Christ. God's love is revealed in Christ. And this is what John tells us in verses 9 through 11. He says, in this... The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God reveals that he is love in sending his son so that you and I might live. Jesus is the love of God in a person. He is God not just telling us he is love, but showing us in a person who came and walked among us. Jesus is and shows and enacts God's love for us. We don't just hear that in word. We see it in action. Now, when I um, was getting married to my wife, she told me that she loved me. And I believed her. <laughs> and I should have. That was good. But over time, I came to really know that she loved me in an experiential way because I saw the way that she lived with me and the way she treated me and the grace that she showed me and the way that she's encouraged me and all, all the things that we know are loving behaviors. That's when I, really, I could really know in an experiential way that she loved me. It wasn't just her words, it was her action. And of course, parents do this all the time. They say, I love you to their kids. Um, and then as kids grow up and they see all the sacrifices parents make and all the energy and time they put, they realize, wow, I didn't realize how much my parents really did love me. I see it even more now. Um, and that's how it is with, with God. We see that he sends his son into the world and he shows us his love for us. How does he do that? He does it by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It's a crazy word. But essentially, it's just saying that Jesus is this sacrifice. He gives his life to bear the destruction and chaos of all the unloving ways that we live our lives. I had, um, I had, I played a little bit of soccer when I was younger and we used to run. I had this one coach and he would stand on the sidelines and we'd be running laps and he would just be barking at us, hurry up, go faster. And I just, I did not like that coach. I don't think he liked us, but I had another coach um, after that who would make us run just as much, if not more, but he always ran with us. And that guy, I knew he loved us and he cared for us because he shared in our sufferings. He came beside us and he ran with us and he did that to make us better soccer players. And and that's in one sense what Jesus does. He comes into the world and walks beside us and actually bears the pain and the consequences and ultimately the death that we deserve because of all the ways that we fail to love one another in the world. Now, as modern people, we think, well, of course God loves us, right? I mean, why wouldn't he? We're wonderful. But, you know, that's not the story the Bible tells. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are not the most lovely of people. We all have those areas of our, our hearts. We have those thoughts. We, we've often done many things that if everyone knew about them, we would be filled with shame and horrified. And we know that people would run away from us. And God knows all that about us. And yet... He loves us and he shows that he loves us by sending his son to bear the death that we deserve. John says it explicitly in verse 10. He says, we have not loved God (laughs) and God loved us before we ever loved him. And this is why Christians believe in grace. Not only is creation a gift of God, this overflow of his generosity and life and love, but sending his son into the world to bear our death for us is also a gift. It is grace from God. Now, why did God do this? John tells us the goal in verse nine is that we might live through the son, that we might live through the son. What does that mean? Well, there are two components to this and there's an order to them. If you reverse these, you miss Christianity, okay? There's an order to this, so don't miss it. First, to have life through the son means to receive and rely upon the love of Jesus, to receive and rely upon the love of Jesus, to receive Jesus as the true communication of God to us. He's the true word from God. I love you. I am love. And then to receive that is to rely upon Jesus as the satisfaction for our failure to love, right? We were created to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And all of us have failed to do that. And so we have to rely upon the love of God in Christ who bore our death for us so that we might go through death and live again. That is how one becomes a Christian. That is how one continues to walk as a Christian. It brings about eternal life with God, life forever with him. Now, this is not just sentimental. And the older I get, the more I realize how true that is. Um, You know, many of you maybe have suffered a lot, but definitely the older you get, the more suffering you see and experience. I've got Friends dying of cancer now, and I've seen people get divorced that I went to college with. And uh, you just start seeing the tragedy of life and you start realizing the power that this has if you receive it and rely upon it. It's transformative. God is an overflowing fountain of love, which is made known most clearly in the sending of his son to pay for our sin and to bring us life with God. If we receive that, it will start to flow out of us. 
When I was young, uh, I used to watch cartoons. I don't know if you all watched like the old, um, what were they called? Not Tiny Toons, but uh, man, the old cartoons. Well, anyway, there was this common trope that would happen in the cartoons where there'd be a, a big body of water and someone would dam it up or something like that. And then there'd be like a little uh, spring that would poke out and the, and the water would be shooting out and someone would stick their finger in it. Have you ever seen this? And then all of a sudden the water would shoot out another area and they'd stick their finger in it. You know, before long they're trying, they're, and I think that's kind of what happens when you're a Christian. When you receive the love of God, like you can't stop the fact that eventually love is going to start shooting out of you to other people. It doesn't happen right away. Your life doesn't change usually in an instant. But suddenly, the love that is poured into you starts shooting out of you. And that's the last thing I want us to see today, which is how will others know that God is love? How will others know that God is love? And John tells us God's love is revealed in the church, in the way that we love one another. Look at verses 12 through 14. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. John says no one has ever seen God. God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. God isn't part of creation. No one has ever seen God. And so God took on human flesh in Jesus. And so people like John actually saw God in the flesh, veiled in the flesh, but they saw God in the flesh. But, he, but Jesus is gone, right? He's ascended into heaven. So how are people today going to know that God is love if they can't see Jesus in person right in front of them, right? Some of you may wonder that. How can I know God is real? How can I know God is love if I can't see him? And John says it's because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts which results in love for our brothers and sisters in the church. Now, that may not be abundantly clear from reading this, but John's primary focus in this letter is to tell the people in the church that you know the real Christians by the ones who are actually loving the the people in the church. It has huge implications also for our love for neighbors and and those outside the church. But at, at the very least, John is saying, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you will start loving Christ's church. That's what he means when he says his love is perfected in us. What he means by that is it's brought to completion. That is the goal of God's love for us in Christ is that we would then love other people. That is love coming to its fruition, right? It doesn't mean we love perfectly, but that's the end uh, of God's love. That's a goal of God's love. And he even says anyone who does not love God does not know God. That's how you can look in the church and beyond and say, who are, the, who are real Christians? Who have really experienced the love of God? It's that there's a trajectory in their life. Not perfect again. It's a trajectory of increasingly learning to love others and not in a sentimental way, but in the real nitty gritty way that imitates the love of God for us in Christ. And I think we all know this. This is how other people are going to know that God is love. Uh, There's a guy in my neighborhood who walked with us for three or four years and he was really hung up as, you know, he's like, I see the appeal of Christianity, but it's just hard for me to really believe God is real. But as he spent time with the church and he saw the way that people lived and then we go and he had all sorts of family that weren't Christians. He said, look, these Christians are flawed people, but I see that they are being changed by what they believe. And it's starting to give credibility to all this. And so he was baptized and he, and he joined the church. And then over time, he's had increased confidence that God is real. But it, it was, he'll tell you, it's because he saw how Christians love each other that he started to actually say, okay, I think I can believe this. And of course, the big challenge today, some of you may be really... Um, 
challenged by this is that the church doesn't always love people well. And we can look at the history of racism and mistreatment of women and abuse and corruption, and we can say, obviously God isn't loved because look at how these Christians treat one another. And that's, that's totally understandable. But I will say that despite our failures to love and often our, our failures as a church to repent, the means of critique are still coming from Christianity. You know, you look at Christianity and say, you're not living up to what you guys say you're supposed to be like. And so maybe in that is some, uh, some sense that there's truth in this, that the church falls short of its own standard and we have to be critiqued and renewed by what we say we believe. If you're a Christian, you need to hear that you have to love God's people if you're following Jesus. That's part of what John's getting at here. If you've experienced the love of God in Christ and you've received that love and you're relying on the love of Christ, then you have to develop over time a love for God's people and join them as flawed as they are. And this is a hard thing in our day and age, right? Because so many churches are, you know, we're horrible people (laughs) and we've got so many failures and maybe we don't want to be associated with that. But the reality is um, the church is filled with sinners and, and you're one of them. And if you love Jesus, you've got to be part of his church. And so, you know, baptism is the way you enter that, right? And when you join the church through baptism, Um, then you you go and you love those people, which means calling one another out when we don't live up to our own standards. So here's the message today. God is love. God has shown his love in sending his son. And if you receive and are filled with God's love, then you will, over time, overflow with that love towards Christ's church and, of course, beyond that to others. That is the core of Christianity. And I think it's a radical message that we are beloved of God, who is himself love in his very essence. And that is why we should love one another. Friends, love is more powerful than anything. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. Of course, tons of people sing about this. I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean, when you look at the nitty gritty of life and you see the way that love grows people into maturity, you see the power in this. I've got kids now. And I know lots of other people with kids, and I see when, when people love their kids well, it is what makes them grow and blossom into healthy and strong people. And when they're not loved, it absolutely cripples people's ability to grow into emotionally healthy people. Spouses who love their husband or wife well build healthy families. Friends who love one another well heal and help each other grow and thrive and succeed. Love brings life. Love heals wounded people. I have met with so many people who have experienced great trauma in their life. And I've seen how when they are loved well and they are provided safety and encouragement and guidance and truth, they experience healing and they can have thriving lives. People who have been betrayed, who are loved well, can learn to trust again and have intimate relationships. Love empowers people to be all that they can be. And so I'm telling you all this because love, God is love. That is not just a sentimental pie in the sky thing. It is incredibly powerful. And if you receive that, that God is love through and through, when you receive that, it changes you and it slowly becomes a channel of love to other people. Because apart from knowing God's love in Christ, how do we relate to people? It's out of this emptiness and need. We're always relating to other people to get something, whether it's affirmation, a 
attention. It could be money. It could be pleasure. It could be excitement. It could be understanding, advantage in life. It could be any number of things. But we relate to people out of this emptiness and need that is meant to be filled by the love of God, the one who made you and sent his son to die for you so that you could have life through him. So I want to urge you and encourage you to receive and rely on God who loved us in Jesus Christ and join with his people as flawed as we are and learn to love one another. Let me pray for us. God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that we are not loving people as we should be. Most of us talk about the importance of love, but rarely do we love people even close to the way that you have loved us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would um, take this message and drive it deep down into our hearts, that we would be people who know at the core of who we are, that we are loved, that we can be forgiven of all our failures to love, that we can experience a whole new way of life and life forever with you. We repent, those of us who are Christians and are part of your church, we repent for all our failures to point to your love in the way that we treat one another. Help us to grow and fight for unity and understanding and compassion and and integrity. I pray for these students here especially as they um, continue to think about the future uh, as they're on this sort of turning point in their lives in college. I pray that they would experience um, a radical taste of your love for them and that would shape the rest of their lives however long that might be in all their vocations relationships wherever they might go that they would go as those who know your love for them we pray this in christ's name amen